0: Welcome to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knipe, bringing you Stories of Art and the Art of Stories. Today we're continuing with all things Grant Foster, exploring connections between J.G. Ballard's 1970 novel The Atrocity Exhibition and Grant's rich figurative practice. If you enjoy this episode, then you might want to backtrack to episode 3, which is part 1 of our discussion. One more thing, just a quick recap. Grant was talking about Ballard's repetition of motifs circling around the sudden death of his wife, aged only 34, and leading on to Grant's own motif of the youth, which acts as a scaffold to hang ideas from. We were specifically focusing on his painting Youth Serum, and are about to head towards notions of eternal life, kicked off by Ballard's additions to his book detailing nose jobs, facelifts, and breast augmentation. So in in 1990, J.G. Ballard added four segments to the book, which were about Princess Margaret's facelift, Queen Elizabeth's nose job, and Mae West's breast reduction, as well as the secret of World War Three or something or other. For me, this is your youth serum painting which is so dramatic and impactful and actually, strangely, I find it really, really beautiful. But of course, it's very disturbed and it's that, you know, the picture of Dorian Gray idea about it. I wanted to come to your two wax figures I know of. I mean, there might be more, but certainly the Aubrey de Grey piece, uh, The Coming Millennia of Body and Soul, which I felt it was like you know in myths where one character morphs into another character right I almost felt like your fairy tale of virtue from 2012 had morphed somehow into Aubrey de Grey you know this this promise of eternal life yeah in the same way that Princess Margaret has this facelift so she can look young forever. So I'd like to know, does the Aubrey de Grey wax figure still exist or is it a melted down puddle?
1: I I have the mould, so it still exists.
0: So how do they work? Because they're quite different to the collage pieces and to your other earlier sculptures and to your recent sculptures at Light You One.
1: Um, Well, I really liked what you were saying earlier about um when you were talking about that podcast you were listening to about the end of the world and you were saying something about you you know in preparation for this i mean what 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 is going to happen i believe is that the world is going to become very difficult to live in and that there will be ways in which The human species learns to adapt to that so I don't think that the human race is going to be extinguished fully but I think that it's going to be extinguished along economic lines so now this is one of the major motivations behind that piece the Aubrey de Grey piece was that Aubrey de Grey is a researcher a life scientist that believes that aging is a disease and should be treated like any other disease and what he means by that is that the way in which we go about treating diseases are that we are able to treat certain diseases which mitigate the effects of ageing. Yeah, so I don't know where he is now, because this was about five years ago, but at the time he was being funded by Peter Thiel, who was one of the early PayPal founders and made an absolute fortune. And so Orbi de Grey is kind of, he's absolutely fascinating in many degrees professionally, But then also, just superficially, he he happens to look like Jesus. (laughs) This is true, you know, like, he looks like Jesus. He's got this incredibly long beard and long hair.
0: He's also a bit ZZ Top.
1: Yeah, Okay. yeah, absolutely. When I said he looked like Jesus, I mean that he looked like a cartoon version of Jesus, you know. So, sorry, Cindy, my cat's just jumped on me. Cindy. So he is this kind of figure that is potentially promising... To those that can afford it, of course, the gift of potentially living to two, three hundred years old. Mm. And so, I kind of wanted to make something that that recognised that, and wax kind of felt like the appropriate medium. I've only actually made two wax works. And the first one was the Fairy Tale of Virtue that was in my Royal College degree show, and then mm. the second one is the Aubrey de Grey thing. That was in that specific show as a as a monument, if you like, to to these youths that were surrounding him basically in kind of a quasi religious structure. Something.
0: And do you see that those two wax figures are connected in any way? Aside from the yeah, use of wax? That's a
1: good point. Yeah. I do think that they are, although I hadn't thought of that before. And I think that the way that they're connected is about this idea of mm. eternal life kind of being promised to those that can afford it.
0: I think they also work so well against the paintings because the paintings are more the mess of reality, whereas the wax sculptures are these really beautiful, you know, quite perfect objects, ideals, ideas.
1: Yeah, totally. Wax is kind of one of these materials that feels very perfect. And when you get up close, it it has its own imperfections in a sense. It's like it's a funny material. It photographs really well.
0: I've only ever used wax as a medium in painting to give bulk to something.
1: Yeah, I was making caustic paintings when I was at the Royal College in my first year. So that was my first um, introduction with wax. And they were kind of experiments, really.
0: I've also seen the repetition of Pig. Little Piggy comes in every now and again. In fact, I think the painting is called There, There, where I can't quite figure out what's going on in the painting. Something about the dog and the youth all curled up with a little piggy nose or a piggy
1: face. That painting was part of the Lighty Show, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, And that was, again, taken from a drawing, because that drawing depicts uh, a youth without the piggy nose, but a youth with a dog sniffing its bum. I
0: remember the drawing very well.
1: And it kind of has a kind of absurdist, kind of carry-on, Punch and Judy kind of-esque seaside resort, which is something that actually links like a lot of the work. Isn't that where you grew up, by the seaside? Exactly, yeah, exactly. So I grew up in Worthing, um, which is like an old tatty kind of seaside town on the south coast of England. It's a weird place to grow up in many ways because it's just endless people being wheeled by in wheelchairs and grey hair because it's like a retirement home. I mean that maybe that's one of the reasons why I paint youths. Possibly because of that. I mean, I, I try not to think about that side of things so much. But le- leading on from yeah, from kind of wanted to make a version of that drawing, the drawing itself of that, you get a really immediate hit from the image, and I knew that I didn't just want to make that as a massive painting and for you to get that is your hit instantly i wanted the image to unfold slowly and unravel and then you kind of like again you're kind of like oh i'm not really exactly sure what's going on here but i get this sense of unease
0: that's right because in the drawing there's no ambivalence whatsoever
1: no no exactly you're asking about the pig the pig motif i don't know the pig motif is something that is kind of like a very common way of being able to get a kind of maleness i think for for me like that motif is actually really very much about attacking yeah my own maleness but like more to do with like i don't know i remember my mom calling my dad like a pig <laughs> maybe it's like something to do with that i'm not sure mm.
0: okay so i suppose moving slightly away from motifs but Staying on the characters. There's such a long list of characters who repeat and repeat and repeat, but I just want to home in on the, you know, there's the bomber pilot who's bonkers and the astronauts who are ghosts and the women are demented and or suicidal and or dangerous sirens. And there's all this sex and violence throughout. And I had spoken to you about things written about your work and the sort of history of within the artistic canon of paintings of children. And the artist I felt was much more connected to your work was Francis Picabia. The work that immediately comes to my mind is his monster paintings, you know, which are sort of stories of the vileness of a hypocritical society. So, Simon Grant in Apollo magazine uh, in September 2016 says, Change and reinvention were the essential ingredients of Picabia's art and created with an array of different media. He was a painter, poet, novelist, publisher, editor, scriptwriter, set designer, and composed musical scores. Picabia's lifelong friend and sometimes collaborator, Marcel Duchamp, described his career as a kaleidoscopic series of art experiences marked by a strong personality. He would also enjoy playing with many alter egos and variously wrote and drew under at least three different identities including St Augustine, Napoleon and Funny Guy. So in his monster paintings. He is Napoleon in one of them and the women are overly made up. Everybody is overly adorned. They're wearing masks. Their eyes are deranged. They're all squiggly lined and liquidy and not to be trusted in any way. And I wondered what your thoughts were about Picabia and if you wanted to speak a bit about how you feel the connection with him as an artist
1: yeah absolutely um he's one of my favorite is the wrong word i think when you're talking about artists but he is an artist that has had kind of a very deep impact i think on me and i think that the body of work that has had the deepest effect on me is the trend is his transparency series Hmm. because in a way they're really to me really about the idea of tolerance in imagery and that's not to say that the images are obscene because they're not they're actually very beautiful they're these kind of layered images of um, that are kind of partly mythological and partly personal and kind of partly observational. But the way that they're painted is that the, each image kind of sits upon one another and that the line kind of suggests other forms. So, you know, a a humanoid figure has, like, the potential to kind of, or the capacity to double up as a kind of a natural form, like a tree or a leaf. And it's like a very kind of topsy-turvy kind of associative flow. And that's kind of what I mean about the idea of tolerance. So it kind of suggests that the way in which we perceive an image to be something that actually isn't, like, necessarily fixed, it kind of unfolds and flowers, and I and so in a way it's actually very they're actually very psychedelic paintings in a way and I that's a word that I kind of always use with caution because I don't mean a drugs experience I mean psychedelic in terms of fluidity and that is something that idea of like tolerance between the flow of images is something that I've become more and more interested in in my recent work which is work that I haven't actually exhibited yet but that is that's kind of yeah, that, 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 I, I feel like the influence of Picabia is becoming more apparent in, in the work that I'm making at the moment, perhaps.
0: Yeah, I'm aware of those paintings, but I haven't looked at them too closely. So that's an invitation right there. We need to wind up soon. I wondered if I might ask you about some specific paintings Okay, so Love Beyond Everyday Words, which is yeah. a fantastic painting that you showed at Transition Gallery, wasn't it, with Georgia Hayes. We've got the elephant on the left and the door on the right and the snake going through the doorway. And then right in the middle of the painting, what well, looks right in the middle of the painting to me, is this tiny little window, which in my view makes the painting. That's a brilliantly placed window and just the right size. Can you perhaps tell us a little bit about that painting?
1: Yeah, the snake was the final part of the painting. I knew that something needed to happen in that painting to, to lock it, really. And the snake actually is just taken directly from one of the photo montages of Max Ernst's A Week of Kindness. Yeah. And after I made that painting, I realised that Polka had actually taken the snake as well and made a version of his own painting with that snake, which I actually hadn't realised. And then the elephant, I guess you could kind of talk about the elephant potentially being like the human presence in the room. Yeah, Um, Yeah, the elephant in the room. Well, there we are. Yeah, there we are. And so I knew that I wanted to create an environment that felt kind of familiar, like familiar through the phrasing, if you like, the elephant in the room, but yet also kind of transcended that environment as well. And then the yellow window feels like maybe like an icon or like a a ray of very extreme light. It's not subtle, it's yellow, it's kind of almost golden against a black velvety background. So, yeah, all those kind of components seem to kind of lock into place to suggest something that I hope is kind of rather poetic to a certain extent. At that show at Transition Gallery, I met one of Georgia's friends. Lovely lady, and um, she wrote me this incredible kind of note about what that painting did to her. And she kind of spoke about the battle between good and evil. And I've still got the note on my notice board. It's like it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to get given as a response to an image you've made, basically.
0: Yeah, she was very affected by it. I can't remember where I read that thing, maybe on Instagram or something. I'm going to go back in time. There's two paintings from 2019, so they're both on paper, they're both called Untitled with a bracketed statement. Well, one of them's a question, which is, is it a consequence of my birthright? And the other one is being objectified. These feel a little bit more personal. The the imagery doesn't say much, but the titles direct you to something more personal. Is it a consequence of my birthright? You're the painter, you're referring to your birthright, and being objectified feels like it's something happening to you as well are these more personal paintings or are they just as personal impersonal observations as the rest of them
1: i think everything you make is personal yeah but yeah at the same time it's kind of not um i was really fortunate after that light show to get given the opportunity of going Study while going and being a temporary member of faculty in a rural American university for two months. As a part of that, I was given a studio and asked to do a bit of teaching on the undergraduate program. And I was kind of given the studio, and where I was was incredibly cold and isolated and rural. Yeah, I think that maybe some of that isolation did kind of allow me to go kind of slightly deeper into ambiguity, perhaps. Because I don't, I, you know, with those words and phrases that feature in and out of the paintings and stuff and paper, I, I'm not necessarily thinking about what they mean semantically. I know that's kind of quite an odd thing. I'm actually thinking about what they do formally, about what the shape of an I, as in the letter I, sits next to the shape of an S, which is like a dagger and then a snake. There's a whole host of different types of associations that come with the placement of letters to me because they're formal shape. So is it a consequence of my birthright? That wasn't necessarily to do with like my own birthright. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. But I do know that I was listening to a lot of um, the Weird Studies podcast. That was actually where a good friend had told me about, I've kind of punctuated my time there with listening to this podcast. And there's another image that I made from that time, which is um, called When the gods show up as diseases sorry when the gods are denied they show up as diseases which was kind of lifted directly really from a conversation that they were having uh, in the podcast about this idea that when the gods are suppressed if you like they turn up in people's lives as diseases and as horror which i thought was quite interesting but people should listen to that podcast
0: absolutely i'll add it to the notes of this one What's the idea behind those? So I know it's a common thing to do, but for you, what's the idea behind saying something is untitled and then putting a statement in brackets afterwards?
1: The title of an artwork for me like has to lift the image out of the image, if you see what I mean. So, no, I'm not sure. I see what you mean. For me, uh, if there's text in the image already then I, I either need to locate that image with that text and refer to it as untitled and then just refer to it as the, the text that features in the image or I'd need to lift it totally outside of its own kind of frame of reference and at that time I was making things with a lot of text that I felt was coming from a place where I didn't necessarily know how to lift it or whether it needed lifting out. So to call it untitled with the with the text just in a way felt like a way for me to categorise it simply. I didn't need to lift it out because they were coming too quickly as well. It's another thing.
0: Just before we finish up, the last one that I wanted to ask you about, which seems quite appropriate to today or are you hearing me okay?
1: I am. It's just Cindy, my cat. She's um, she's wanting my attention. I'm not sure what she wants. I think she might want feeding.
0: Can you just take a moment to explain to her what we're doing? And then I'm sure she'll understand. Okay, so I want to come to your painting, which is from 2018. And it sort of comes full circle to how this podcast started with you talking about people ransacking supermarket shelves. So it's called so, The Yellow Wallpaper, yeah. and, and, and it features toilet rolls. But yeah. also The Yellow Wallpaper is a brilliant book about mm. madness. So where does this painting come from?
1: Well, when I was growing up, I remember this kind of, I have this very distinct memory of my mum basically kind of writing her shopping lists on, like, single sheets of toilet paper. Like, <laughs> <it's> absolute... <laughs> so that's what that is. I kind of wanted to make a painting that, I had, like, the presence of a figure in a room, but without necessarily the presence of that figure. Because there was a figure in there originally, and I was able to cut it out very easily and kind of reassemble the forms. And that's what you see in the centre of the picture. So it's actually a light bulb. I know some people thought it was a floating pear or something, but it's actually just a light bulb, like a Guston light bulb. Yeah the yellow wallpaper yeah you're right like it's uh it's a fantastic book and i was kind of told to read it actually as i was making the painting and i seem to remember that i had to put the painting on hold for a while because i couldn't finalize it and the book is about how a woman is really trapped inside her own room by uh forces of over love perhaps or over care Mm. and of course that becomes abuse and so this all human being has to go through a series of almost kind of hallucinations. But you're not really sure if she is hallucinating or not, or whether like it's the world around her that's going mad. So it's kind of very clever. So in a way, I kind of wanted to make a painting about someone living in a room that was there, but isn't there. I guess it's about presence and it's kind of about absence as well.
0: I think what's particularly important for me in that book is that she is forbidden to do anything creative. She is forbidden to write. And I can't remember, I think the author herself actually went through a breakdown and I can't remember her name for the moment. Anyway, I'll put it in the notes for this podcast, but the author wanted to make it very clear that creativity is the way out of madness. But
1: maybe you could tell us what it is for you. (laughs) um that's a really good point though about that book is that that's that is the central message isn't it that the idea of being able to kind of respond to the world is like her way out of feeling as if she you know of having all her options removed you know, and yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that. I, the only way that I want to be able to live in the world is through being able to observe what's going on around me. And the only way that I can do that is through making work. It, I, would, I would be forced to lead a very different type of existence, I think.
0: Yeah, I, could, I couldn't agree more. I'd like to almost end on a really miserable note. Oh, yeah.
1: good, Because
0: that seems appropriate here. So I'd like to come to the mention of the four riders. And they are the four riders from the Book of Revelation, and they are conquest, war, famine and death. And we've sort of talked very briefly about Albrecht Dürer, who in 1498 created a piece called The Four Horsemen from the Apocalypse, and Turner, in response to probably the Black Death in 1825, painted Death on a Pale Horse. And I thought the Four Horsemen also related to the Three Astronauts plus One. The reason why I say that I think they relate to the Four Horsemen is that at one point Talbot, when he's been the former H-bomber pilot, He talks about a trap for your womb, Karen. Karen Novotny is the one who is repeatedly killed throughout every chapter. And also when she asks about the fourth astronaut, he says that you've caught him in your womb. And so in a way, maybe Karen Novotny is the embodiment of death and death as a, some sort of return to the womb, because he does talk about the embryo and this sort of perfect phase that the embryo goes through in the very beginning with the splitting of cells. And I also assume that the three astronauts are referenced to the Apollo 1 launch pad fire, which killed three astronauts who were not called Zero, Coma and Klein. They were called Grissom, Chaffee and White but anyway the point here I take a long time to get to the point but I will is this continual return to the four horsemen that seems to just be in the air at the moment. And you talked before about if you ignore the gods, they will come back and wreak havoc. And so as part of my work, I'm a member of the International Art Critics Association, and the American chapter has been creating a real-time collective diary. And Eleanor Hartney actually talked about these four riders as well. And she quite specifically in her essay Thoughts on Doom talked about the return of the Pale Rider and the Pale Rider who appears in Turner's painting is this bringer of pestilence. So this brings us in a very long-winded way to the COVID virus and how the book in its way is trying to come to terms with the assassination of JFK and is trying to come to terms with the choice that Marilyn Monroe has made to turn her back on the Establishment and kill herself. And I've been thinking about there's lots of people on the front line in all different ways, but one of them is, of course, the medical profession, treating patients and being given this sort of godlike responsibilities. And I wonder about the, if you like, the post traumatic stress that possibly comes out of that you know, what's Ballard telling us about coming to terms with the reality of us? What is Grant Foster in his paintings telling us about these fragmented realities of ourselves that we might want to face up to?
1: I think that the Four Horsemen, these are figures that obviously haven't just been invented. These are figures that go very, very far back. And they exist as characters in our kind of consciousness, and I think obviously what is happening currently is that these these figures are kind of making a cameo appearance in everyone else's kind of in our shared consciousness, if you, if you like, and let's just hope it is a cameo. The trauma that you talk about with the health workers is something that needs to be understood when we go to hospital. The people that are looking after us have their own home lives, And the way that I think that the way that I fear that we were thinking about the NHS was that we were kind of entitled to a super efficient service. And of course, we need that. But the the healthcare professionals are only doing as far as they can. And we need to direct our anger upwards and not downwards. That's the fundamental thing. We need to direct our anger upwards towards the policymakers and people that make those decisions, not the people that are working within the front line. And I think that that is what this virus is showing us, that this is the, the gesture of the applause. I mean, I, I, and it is only a gesture. And that's what we must remember when we clap, is that this is simply a gesture and all gestures are hollow. It's the actions that follow the gestures that are the things that matter. But a gesture is like a painting. It's, like, it's the ideas that follow the forms. They're the things that are real, in a sense. I'm glad you brought it back to painting, because yeah.
0: there's a difference between the motivations for creating a painting than there is for looking at a painting, because a lot of people will want to look at a painting but not necessarily create one. So thinking about looking at paintings, well, for me at least, the point is to be able to relate that to my life and not necessarily in a straight line of conscious thinking. Sometimes there can be something that grasps you in a piece of work that you only understand years later, or you may not even consciously register, but somehow your subconscious will process that in, in, in some form. And we are at a close. So I Maybe you could tell us about what you're reading at the moment.
1: Well, before all this books off, I, like what I like to do is kind of like do a month off drinking, like a January. And like, and so that's like something I do. And then I start like a massive book because I feel like my brain comprehension is sort of improved and like my patience is improved. So like I started The Brothers Karamazov, which is a great book, like so dense and so psychologically astute. Uh, But then this happened and I, for about a month, I wasn't able to really do much. And uh, so I lost the train of thought. And I have started reading again now. And I've picked up a book that a friend told me about called Pattern Recognition by Mm -hmm. William Gibson that I haven't read before. And I'm told by my friend, who is also interested deeply in Ballard, that this book kind of somehow has parallels with the Atrocity Exhibition. But I'm not sure how because I've only just started reading it. But um, I think William Gibson is someone actually that was like interested about the interface between, you know, human psychology and technology and deep human motivations for certain behavioral actions and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to finishing that.
0: Well, it'd be interesting for you to discover how that relates to Ballard and how that relates to work, your work, and it'd be interesting for all of us to see what happens with your work after this phase, because for me, at least, and I think for a lot of other people that I speak to, you don't want to go through this and not have it affect you in some way. I mean, it brings with it an an opportunity, other possibilities. But on that note, thank you very much, Grant Foster, for joining us today on Art Fictions.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Take care.
0: Thank you to this week's guest and to all the artists who continue to inspire this podcast. And thank you for listening to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knight. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, please review, and of course, you're welcome to get in touch with me directly if you'd like more information via my Instagram, Art Fictions 2020 or my website gillianknight.co.uk. Across these you'll find images of the artist's work as well as any relevant links we mentioned today. Many thanks to Griffin Knight for his original music composition and performance. Happy reading and art viewing till next time. You can go and feed the cat now
1: that's great yeah i uh <laughs> i've really enjoyed this this is great and i wouldn't say that to everyone i don't say that to everyone oh so good
0: silly. that really means a lot all right go on off you okay. go see ya